All right. Well, good morning again, 59th Street family. Uh, we welcome those of you who are joining us a little bit later today as we continue in our sermon series, uh, Knots by Bread Alone, where we explore how true transformation and satisfaction can only be found, of course, in Christ alone. Uh, now, we've gone through several miracles and several teaching moments that Jesus has performed, and as we continue to move forward in Jesus's ministry, he's about to perform, in my opinion at least, one of the greatest miracles that the world has ever seen. Uh, but since this sermon series has been focused so far on the theme of transformation, um, I want to talk a little bit about that today, especially when it relates to our openness to be transformed, how our openness to that transformation will generally lead to us actually being transformed. And as I was reflecting on these ideas of transformation, I was thinking back to a conversation I had with a fellow brother. His name is Darwin, who runs the Bayridge School of Music on Fort Hamilton Avenue. And in one of our conversations, he mentioned the book, uh, The Cross and the Switchblade. Um, I think if, can we get those slides up or are they not there? Okay, wonderful. I think that should be the third slide or the second slide, uh, Shuri. Um, the Cross and the Switchblade. So that The Cross and the Switchblade is actually a biographical book. Some of you guys might have read it. It's written by David Wilkerson, who started Times Square Church. And in the book, David talks about how he was pretty much a country preacher from rural Pennsylvania who got a calling by God to move specifically into New York, uh, into New York City in the 1950s for the sole purpose of ministering to gang members and drug addicts. And in the book, David, he actually mentions the story of ministering to a young man named Nikki Cruz, um, who will be on the next slide. He's actually the one to the left. Now, Nikki Cruz, he was part of a very violent Puerto Rican gang in New York City, and he definitely had a reputation for being extremely tough. Um, in the course of six months, he basically went from just a street kid to being selected as a warlord for the gang, and eventually he rose to become the president of the entire group. And Cruz, he actually wrote his own autobiography, but in his own book, he remembered how David would come up to him and tell him that Jesus loved him and would never stop loving him. Now, of course, being a tough New York gang member, uh, Nikki did what I think most gang members would do if a preacher came up to you telling you that Jesus loves you. And so Nikki, he slapped David and threatened to kill him. But David Wilkerson didn't let that stop him. David would approach Nikki over and over again. And Nikki would respond over and over again by physically beating up David and spitting on him, you know, shouting all sorts of profanities. But again, even despite being beat up several times, slapped, spit on, David would still not quit. He would continue to go to Nikki to tell him about the love of Jesus. And Nikki began to realize something very interesting. Nikki realized that it's not just David who is persistent in telling Nikki about the love of Jesus, but he also began to see how persistent God was in his love and his compassion for Nikki. And that tiny bit of openness, that just tiny bit of realization was all God needed to transform Nikki's life. 
And so flash forward in the book, David actually, he hosts uh, evangelical or e an evangelistic meeting um, at a boxing ring, interesting place to hold an evangelistic meeting, but he holds it in a boxing ring and David hears about this. I mean, sorry, Nikki hears about this. And David actually goes as far as sending them a private bus just for them, to, for them to get on and to attend this meeting. And when Nikki finally arrived into the arena, something instantly changed inside him. Nikki began to feel convicted. He began to become convicted for the things that he had done in his life, for the way that he treated David. And Nikki started to pray. And as David Wilkerson, as he you know, gave the message, as he gave an altar call for all the gang members to receive the forgiveness of sins and to receive a new heart, Nikki had the courage and the desire to go up to the altar call. And David prayed with Nikki. And interestingly enough, right after that meeting, um, Nikki and his crew, they, they <laughs> went literally straight to the police station and they turned in all of their handguns, they turned in all of their knives, and he started to tell the rest of his gang members about forgiveness in Christ. And this is a powerful story because in today's passage, we actually see a similar event of change and of transformation, although it doesn't necessarily have to deal with gang violence. But the idea is that as long as we are open, even the smallest bits of gap of openness, that is all that is necessary to allow our hearts to change, even if it's just the smallest of gaps. So let's actually take a look at our passage today from John chapter 11, uh, verses 23 to 44. Now, the backstory of this is that um, Jesus was supposed to meet Lazarus and he heard that Lazarus was about to die. And Jesus said, let me wait in a, in a city for three more days until he's definitely dead, and now I'll go visit him. So that's a bit of the backstory, and we're going to continue on from there. And so Jesus said to her, being the sister, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will, leave, will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister, Mary, aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. Now, Jesus had not even entered the village, but was at, still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, which we read last week, have kept this man from dying? And Jesus once more deeply moved, 
came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Mary, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefits of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, before we talk about ourselves, and I think about the idea of openness and of transformation, I think it's kind of important maybe to kind of lay the groundwork to talk about who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Why should we even let him in? Who even is he? And to answer this question, we actually see Jesus reveal his own identity quite plainly. In the midst of profound pain, loss, and confusion, Jesus presents himself as the resurrection and the life. What does that mean, resurrection and life? I think to truly actually grasp the depths of the statement, we have to first grasp the meaning of these two concepts of resurrection and of life. So the concepts of resurrection, if we can go for two slides, please, Shuri. Thank you. The concept of resurrection is actually um, nothing new in Jewish thoughts and belief. Uh, the idea that the dead would one day rise again was actually a core belief for the Pharisees and for most Jews. Uh, for the most part, almost all the Jewish people believed that at the end of time, the resurrection of the dead would happen. He believed that God would restore life to those who have died and in a powerful and divine act, God would show that he is actually the Lord over life and death. He can dictate whether someone lives, but he can also dictate whether someone will rise from the dead. And in some sense, I think that is what we as Christians believe as well. But the thing is, Jesus actually goes beyond the traditional understanding. By Jesus telling Martha that I am the resurrection, Jesus doesn't point to some sort of abstract future in some unknown time and date, but Jesus refers to himself, that he is the embodiment of resurrection power, and that power is present today in our midst. That God that you're waiting for to bring back the dead, guess what? He is here right now. The God who brought life from nothing, the God who makes flowers bloom after a cold and barren winter, the God who has power over life and death, Jesus says, that is me, and I am here now. And sometimes I find it slightly amusing that we as Christians, and I'm definitely guilty of this too, sometimes we pray for God's second coming, for Christ to come again to bring resurrection to the world. But like Martha, we fail to see that resurrection is already happening all around us. Resurrection happened in Nikki Cruz's life. Resurrection is happening in our children's and our youth ministry. Resurrection is happening every Sunday morning, every prayer meeting, every outreach event, every small group, because Jesus is still here now, working to bring life 
in moments of death, wherever we are and whenever we are. But not only is Jesus the resurrection, but Jesus also describes himself as the life. And if you look at the concept of life throughout the New Testament or yeah, throughout the New Testament, um, there's actually a variety of meanings. Of course, there is physical life, but Jesus actually kind of points at a deeper life. Jesus points to spiritual life. See, if God is the source of life, if God is life himself, then our separation from him, separation from the source of life and goodness can only result in our death. When we cut ourselves from the God of life, the only end result for us is, of course, death. And that is why throughout our lives, we have searched far and wide to fill our hearts, to fill our souls with all sorts of things that we believe can give us satisfaction, meaning, and life. But unfortunately, this whole, this barren aspect of our heart can only be filled with God himself. And so when Jesus is making the claim of his identity as life, Jesus is not just offering physical life or a temporary sense of fulfillment. Jesus is actually offering us genuine spiritual life that is grounded in a deep and meaningful relationship with God. Jesus actually, in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, he actually describes his life as an abundant life, a life that is filled with spiritual riches, such as peace, joy, and purpose. But life in the New Testament is also described as a transformed life, where we, give, where we are actually given a new life in Christ. And this new life is a life where our past mistakes, our past sins and failures no longer define us. It is a new life, a fresh start, a new start where our identity, our new identity is now rooted as brothers or sisters of Christ and as a child of God. And just like how Jesus' resurrection power can be experienced now, Jesus is also telling Martha as well, that a deeply transformed life can also be experienced today. And as we are gathered here today, Jesus is also gathered with us as the resurrection and as the life, and he desires to transform the brokenness within us into life and into wholeness. Like Martha, we're actually put into a very unique situation you see, we're confronted, just like Martha, with physical and spiritual death and decay around us all the time. But at the same time, we're also confronted by the presence and the reality of Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. So we're seeing two sides here, death and decay, life and meaning. How do we respond to such a situation? I think throughout the Bible and our lives, we often see instances where people kind of fail to understand or fail to accept the truth of Christ. It seems so plain for us to see, but sometimes there are stumbling blocks. Now, throughout the past week, we've seen how the Pharisees, for example, witnessed Jesus's miracles, but they were blinded by their own you know, religious misconceptions and blinded by their own pride. But in our passage today, uh, the primary stumbling block is unbelief. But if we kind of dig a little deeper, we see that there's actually a root cause that leads to unbelief. And one of the root causes is grief, which leads to despair. Uh, both Mary and Martha, as well as those gathered to mourn Lazarus' death, 
they were obviously quite filled with grief. And grief is a healthy and natural human response to death. And that is even how Jesus responded to the death of his own friend. He had grief. He wept. But there is a difference between Jesus's tears and those of Mary's and Martha's. Jesus wept with hope, but Mary and Martha wept with despair. Both sisters were so focused on their loss that they could not see the hope and the life that Jesus was offering to them. And I think all of us here have gone through such a scenario before in our lives. We might have lost a parent, a loved one, or perhaps worst of all, we might have lost a child. We might have had our academic or our career dreams dashed before our very eyes. In our youth group, it might be the experience of your very first heartbreak or rejection where they cry out, you know, ah, I'll never love again. You know, don't worry, Jonathan, you, you definitely will love again. But what is common in all these experiences is that there's a feeling of hopelessness, a feeling of helplessness. We realize our friends and our family, they're still there for us. They still care for us. But at the same time, we cannot help but to feel entirely shut off from the rest of the world. In our brain, we intellectually understand that we are loved by those around us, but we are filled with so much grief that we feel so alone. Even if the room is crowded, we feel so isolated. And if we stay in this sort of despair long enough, Eventually, this despair leads to numbness, where we watch our favorite shows, eat our favorite food, or talk to our best friend, but all the while, we feel absolutely nothing because we have spent so much of our time in despair and hopelessness that our hearts are metaphorically dead. We can hear this message of Jesus. We can hear about the resurrection and the life. We can hear all these good news of the gospel, but in our hearts, all we can say is, Jesus, where were you? Where were you when I lost my job? Where were you when my mom died, when my spouse fell ill, or when my child was crossing the streets? We respond very much like Mary, like Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In the face of despair, hopelessness, and grief, it can be difficult to see the proverbial light at the end of our tunnel. Our hearts are so hardened, our eyes are so closed, and we wonder if there is a future for us at all. But the thing is, if Jesus is indeed who he says he is, if he indeed is the resurrection and the life, we have to acknowledge that he is the source of hope and of healing. Even if we do not believe it with our hearts yet, if we at least allow the smallest of openings, if we allow at least the intellectual possibility that Jesus can bring change in our lives, I have faith that Jesus indeed will. And so let's take a look at that in our final sermon point today, opening up our tombs. And the final step, or actually the first step in opening up our tomb is recognizing and accepting Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And practically, what does this mean? Practically, this means that we give Jesus our all. Earlier this week, uh, Pastor Stephen and I were at a conference, and the worship team there, they actually wrote a song called Have It All, where Jesus can have it all, and they sang it for us. And the point of the song 
is that often when we think of giving our lives, all of our lives to God, we think about it in the sense of duties, of responsibilities. What do I have to do? Do I have to you know, spend more time at church? Do I have to go to more Bible studies, do this or do that? But the point of that song is to remind us that when we give everything, our entire lives to God, it's not just our duties. It's not just our responsibilities. It also includes our hurts and our pains. That as we go through life and suffer wound after wound, we look up to the Lord and we tell him, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. I cannot handle this. Lord, I give it all to you. You can have it all. And as we move closer and closer to Good Friday, where we hear of our Lord's suffering, it's important to remember that Jesus not only died for our sins, but Jesus also died for our sufferings and our shame. That on the cross, Jesus suffered the full burden of humanity. Jesus experienced what it is like to have grief that leads to despair. Jesus experienced what it is like to lose absolutely everything, to live life with constant grief and numbness. So as we give Jesus our all, that means opening up the tombs of our hearts that we have kept shut. The emotions we can't let out because if we did, it would just lead to us breaking down. We first open that tomb and we give it to Christ. Now, as we open it up to Christ, the next step is, of course, we invite Jesus in. We invite Jesus to perform his work of resurrection and life within us. I think it's important to remember that unlike Mary and Martha who wept with despair, Jesus also wept, but he wept with hope. We can choose to see our circumstances through a lens of hopelessness, but we can also see and choose to see the world and our lives through the lens of faith, to take that leap of faith and to believe that Jesus has the power to heal, to renew, and to restore us, and to trust that this work will not be done in some far distant future, you know, far after we're dead, but that Jesus can be experienced now that we can experience the resurrection and the life in our lives today. Now, as we come to the close of our sermon, um, let me just give us a word of warning, but also a word of encouragement as well. Um, I believe in the power of Jesus. I believe that Jesus has the power to perform miracles of all kind. Uh, but at the same time, I think sometimes we can be so closed off from God uh, due to the effects of grief and shame, that even when Jesus calls us, uh, we might not be able to hear him. And so part of the process of opening up our tombs might also be taking practical steps in addressing the core issues causing our despair, whether that might mean for us to seek professional help, making amends in broken relationships, or adjusting our priorities and commitments. But as we do this, I also want us to be encouraged that we're not doing it alone. That as we invite Jesus into the tomb of our lives, he's working actively within us to bring healing, to bring restoration within us. I believe that Jesus is the ultimate source of hope, strength, and love. And I believe that as we invite him into our lives, we can trust that he will walk with us every single step of the way. Thing is, of course, we might not be transformed instantaneously like Lazarus, but we are sure that transformation will come as we continue to live out our faith and trust in Jesus. And so as we're about to enter into a period of prayer, um, let us pray. 
So be encouraged. Let us move with the assurance that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that he will bring transformation and life within us as we give everything up to him, including our hurts and our pains. But let us also pray for each other here today, for those who might be experiencing profound brokenness around us, whether that be, might be our brothers and sisters here or our family or friends outside this church who we know are hurting. Let us pray also to have the sensitivity and the boldness to know when to preach the gospel at just the right time so that we can participate with God in the resurrection work around us. So why don't we come together for a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, you see the scars in our bodies and on our hearts. You've seen the hurts we have endured in our lives. You see the tomb within our hearts and the emotions we have kept inside us for so long. Lord, today we give it all to you. We can't handle it. We don't know what to do with it, but you want all of us. You don't, you don't just want the good part of our lives, the holy part of our lives, but you also want what is ugly and what is broken. And so we lift that to you today. And we open ourselves up to receive your life. Father, there's so much hurt within us, so much hurt around us. So we pray not just for ourselves, but for those around us as well. We pray for our friends and our family, for the grief that is in their lives. We pray for those who have yet to experience what it is like to be overwhelmed by your love, to experience what it is like to be resurrected into your life. Pray for those who are grieving without hope, who are stuck in despair. Father, equip us. Give us the sensitivity and the heart to be your partners, to work alongside you so that we can bring healing into the lives of others around us. And so we thank you, Father, and we praise you. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.